of the unrighteous steward. And he was indeed unrighteous. He was unrighteous in the way he squandered his master's possessions and in the way he cheated him out of what was due him by his debtors. Without praising him for his unrighteousness, Jesus did point out that we can learn something positive from him. He was shrewd. He was prudent in his use of what had been entrusted to him. He used it to prepare for a day when his stewardship would be over. He prepared for his inevitable dismissal. And so must we. So must we. What we do with what God has entrusted to us in this life determines our life to come. And if we're faithful in the use of material possessions, He will entrust to us that which is eternal. We learned that from the parable of the unrighteous steward. Well, today we come to another parable, one that we generally call the rich man and Lazarus. A better name for it might simply be the unrighteous rich man. And this parable does continue the theme of the previous one. Because the rich man apparently gave no thought to life after death. He made no provision for his dismissal from this life. The parable pictures the eternal consequences of such foolishness. It begins with a look at life as viewed from the rich man's table. We're in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 21. Now there was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now, the parable opens with a scene of extreme contrast, extravagant wealth and abject poverty. And it begins with a brief yet pointed description of the rich man's condition. And Jesus begins his parable as he did the last one. There was a certain rich man. Now, some traditionally have given him the name Dives, which is actually just the Latin for rich. But in the parable, he's simply a certain rich man who flaunted his wealth. He didn't just occasionally dress up. He habitually dressed in purple. And fine linen. He wanted to make certain everyone knew he could afford the most expensive designer clothing. And he made sure that he wore only the finest undergarments against his skin. Living gaily in splendor included sumptuous, gluttonous feasts every day. He didn't just occasionally splurge like he will tomorrow night at our sweetheart banquet. He lived large every day because he thought he could afford it. 
He was the proverbial rich man that Jesus spoke of on more than one occasion. Jesus then introduces us to a certain poor man named Lazarus. Now, it's unusual for a character in a parable to be named. In fact, this is the only time Jesus does so, and that's led some to conclude that this is a true story and not a parable at all. But Lazarus is the Greek form of Eliezer, which means God is my help. And that may be Jesus' way of indicating that the poor man in the parable put his trust in God. Putting his trust in God, however, didn't keep him from longing for the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. In fact, they may have been more than mere crumbs. Those who had more than they needed were accustomed to wiping their hands on pieces of bread and then just throwing them away. Had Lazarus been able, he would have no doubt rummaged through the rich man's dumpster. But he was not only poor, he was unable to walk. He had to be laid at the rich man's gate. Now, whether he was laid there by friends who were as poor as he, or people who merely wanted to assuage their conscience by getting him in close proximity to a rich man without actually helping him themselves, we don't know. But either way, he was in dire straits. He was starving. He was physically impaired. He was covered with sores that were attended to by licking dogs. The rich man was gaily living in splendor every day. And Lazarus was in agony. But situations change drastically as the parable continues. Verses 22 through 26. Now it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I'm in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able, and that, those, and that none may cross over from there to us. Now, before we take a closer look at the details in this parable, we must remind ourselves again that this is a parable. To view this passage of Scripture as an explanation of what happens immediately after death, may be reading more into it than Jesus intended. You know, our understanding of the future must be formed by a careful compilation of all relevant scriptures, 
all the while realizing that there's no way we can fully comprehend it because it will take place in a realm we've not yet experienced. We don't know all the details. We can't even understand what all is going to happen at death. We're given glimpses. We piece it together for some kind of understanding. But we've got to be very careful not to take just one passage and say this is it, especially a passage that's a parable. Okay? That's very, very important. Very important. Now, having said all that, I think we can get a glimpse of life after death in this parable. And I'm certain Jesus wouldn't mislead us by the things that he said. The parable begins with the poor man's death and is being carried away by angels to Abraham's bosom. Now that, in and of itself, is enough to raise questions. <laughs> you know, we get the part about the poor man dying. But was Jesus being poetic when he said he was carried away by angels? Or do angels literally do such? Obviously, they don't carry away our bodies at death. And we've known from experience that they remain behind after death. We've all seen a corpse in a casket. Now, a chariot of fire did pick up Elijah. And he was carried away by a whirlwind into heaven. But that, I believe, was a one-time event. And it's doubtful that angels are needed to carry our spirits into the presence of God. So Jesus may well have been speaking figuratively when he spoke of Lazarus being carried away by angels. And it is a beautiful way to picture the death of a believer. I like that image. We also can pick something else out of this. And that is that apparently this was an Old Testament believer. And that's evidenced by the fact that Jesus pictured him as being carried away into Abraham's bosom. Obviously, he could not have pictured him as being carried away into the arms of Jesus because Jesus was still on earth telling the parable at that time. And the reference to Abraham's bosom isn't really as weird as it seems. Now, back in the 13th chapter, Jesus spoke of those who would recline in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And picturing Lazarus resting in Abraham's bosom is really no different than the way John is said to have reclined on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. You remember when they ate, they, they kind of laid around on pillows, on an elbow, and forked in the food. And they would tend to just kind of lean on each other. That's the picture we get here. It's a picture of sweet, intimate fellowship around a banquet table in heaven. And that's where Lazarus is pictured. The rich man, however, is not pictured around that table. Jesus simply says he died and was buried. The scene then changes to Hades. Now, Hades is not a nice word for hell, in spite of what my mother may have thought. <laughs> Hades is the equivalent of the Old Testament Sheol, the abode 
of the dead. A place to which people were thought to descend at death. It's used ten times in the New Testament. And it does seem to indicate a place where spirits go at death. In his sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter declared that David was prophesying the resurrection of Jesus when he wrote, Thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. And in Revelation 1.18, Jesus presents himself as the living one who was dead, but is now alive forevermore, the one who has the keys of death and Hades. In Matthew 16.18, Jesus told Peter that the gates of Hades, I think that's the a picture of the keys to death and the grave, could not overpower the church. And in Revelation 20.14, A day is pictured when the sea, death, and Hades will give up the dead which are in them, and death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire. So the rich man is not in hell, but he's in Hades, and he is in torment. Lazarus, on the other hand, is pictured as being comforted in Abraham's bosom. Now, some would suggest that this indicates that at death we will go to a temporary place of punishment or reward before being eternally banished to hell or ushered into heaven at the second coming. And it does appear that our reward will begin before the final judgment. Jesus did tell the thief on the cross today. You will be with me in paradise. So that kind of makes sense. At death, we go to a spiritual place of torment or comfort. And we spend time there until the second coming. And then we go to our final reward. That seems to make sense. But again, this is a parable. And as all the kids know, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And this may simply be the best way to picture what happens when we die without trying to explain what really happens when we step out of time and into eternity. I'm not going to try to explain that this morning. We've stumbled over that in Bible study many times. And we walk away going, woohoo! There are things we cannot understand, and this may simply be a way to get us to understand that things change drastically when we move out of this realm into another dimension, the dimension of eternity. I think that's probably the case. But be that as it may, the rich man cried out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I'm in agony. In this flame. To which Abraham replied, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he's being comforted here and you are in agony. Now, again, I think we have to be careful here. I don't believe the Bible actually supports the idea that if we have it good in this life, we'll be punished in the next and vice versa. 
you know, that in eternity we will have a reversal of fortunes. It almost sounds like that here. We are told that it will be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. And Jesus did say that the poor in spirit would be blessed for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But it's not our station in life that secures for us a place in heaven or hell. Our place in heaven is secured for us by what Christ did on the cross and our faith in Him. Nothing else. So let's not draw a conclusion that I think is very unbiblical. If you have it good here, you're going to hell there. Or if you have it tough here, just hang on. It's going to get better. It may not get better for you. If you don't know Christ, it won't. Apparently Lazarus, poor as he, he was, still had faith in his heavenly Father. And I think he was rewarded for that faith. It isn't spelled out in the parable. But I think that's kind of the underlying picture of him being named Lazarus. The rich man, on the other hand, was an unrighteous steward of what God had entrusted to him. He thought all that he had was simply his to enjoy. And he failed to use it to make a friend who would welcome him into the eternal dwellings, as pictured in the last parable. And now it's too late. It was too late. He could see Lazarus, but there's a great chasm fixed between them. And while we're not told that Lazarus could see him, that's a disturbing concept to think someone in comfort would see somebody being in agony. The other side seems to fit. It doesn't say. But even if he could see him, and even if he would have wanted to go and minister to him, he couldn't. There was that great chasm fixed between them. And no one could cross over from where the rich man was in a place of torment to where Lazarus was a place of comfort. It was fixed. It was settled. Now, while they may not have been in their final destinations, their eternal destinies had been sealed by the lives they had lived. And this is obviously not a picture of what some might call purgatory, a place where some like to think, will be given a second chance. I find no support of that in the Scriptures. It was too late for the rich man. It was too late. So just what was the rich man's sin? Verses 27 through 31. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be persuaded, 
if someone rises from the dead. The rich man was not condemned because he was rich. Abraham, you remember, was a rich man. He was condemned for another reason, and he knew it. That's why he wanted Abraham to send Lazarus to his father's house and warn his brothers. But Abraham told him there was no need for anyone to go to his brothers because they already knew what they needed to do. They had the writings of Moses and the prophets, and all they had to do was listen to them and obey it. The rich man knew they wouldn't do it because he hadn't. And since the scriptures hadn't been sufficient to bring him to repentance, he figured it would take something else to bring his brothers to repent. Surely, Lazarus coming back from the dead would do it. But Abraham said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Now, not only was Jesus addressing the concerns the rich man had, he's speaking, I think, also to the Pharisees at this point. I don't think they caught what he was really getting at on their behalf. But someday they might realize he had been talking about their refusal to believe him even after coming back from the dead. I think he was forecasting his resurrection, and their rejection of that truth. You know, if they couldn't see how he fulfilled the law and the prophets, he knew they wouldn't believe in him after the resurrection. And if the rich man's brothers wouldn't heed the scriptures, they would no more repent because someone came back from the grave to warn them than the rich man would have. We tend to think, if I just saw something more, that would do it. It won't. In the study in the Old Testament on Wednesday night, overwhelmed by the evidence they had of God's activity and the warnings that he gave them time and time again, they wouldn't listen. Even when someone came back from the dead as a nation, the Jews didn't listen. And the rich man's brothers weren't listening to the Scriptures either. They wouldn't heed the Scriptures. They, if they wouldn't heed the Scriptures, they wouldn't respond. They wouldn't repent if someone came back from the dead. The rich man had Moses and the prophets. And the law and the prophets could be summarized by loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind and your neighbor as yourself. Apparently, the rich man didn't love God. Obviously, he didn't love his neighbor. And there's no question whether or not Lazarus was his neighbor. He was laid at his gate. He didn't love his neighbor. Now, in a day of mass media 
and the instantaneous reporting of tragedies around the world, it's hard for us to always know who our neighbor is and who it is God expects us to care for. We're overwhelmed by images of tragedy we see. How are we to respond? What does God hold us accountable for? I don't know. I think we need to pray for wisdom to know how we're to respond and to whom we're to respond. But I do know that to ignore a neighbor in need is to share in the rich man's sin. We better let that guide us. And we must prove to be faithful stewards of all God has entrusted to us. May we, in fact, surrender our all to him.